please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Before we begin, I would like to remind us all to be praying for our mission teams. Two mission teams have left, left yesterday, almost 40 members, two teams combined, some going to Juarez, some going to the Omaha Nation. Think of them throughout the week and pray for them. Um, you'll see updates on uh, various forms of social media if you are interested in seeing their progress, so please look there. Also, uh, thanks to Billy Hastings for helping this morning. Billy is a member of our church who just graduated from seminary and in training for ministry, so I'm thankful to have him here as Pastor Aaron and Pastor Jeremy were leading the Lee Summit service this morning. It's a blessing to have these brothers uh, to aid in this way. We have come to the middle part of Acts Acts 17 in particular, and this is the record of Paul's second major missionary journey. Look at the map that you have there on the insert. I'll put that uh, in on the insert from time to time to give us some orientation about where we are in the world as Paul walks through, or I should say, travels through on this trip. And we have come from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now we're heading down to Berea. That's a little over 50 miles south of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a metropolitan city, a large city in Greece at that time. It remains so today. Um, a mixture of various cultures. There were pagan temples there. There was a Jewish synagogue there. Kind of a picture of culture. It really captured Greco-Roman culture in the year 55 AD or so when this is happening. Um, as opposed to Berea, where we now arrive today with the apostle and Silas and Timothy. And Berea is more of a backwater type town. Um, it had a, a, a working class people. It was off the Ignatian Way, so they had to take a separate route, or Paul did, to get there. It wasn't along the normal path one might take. But by God's direction, um, he is now in Berea. And that's where we pick up in the text. As he does what he normally does, he goes to the Jewish synagogue, if there is one, and begins his discussions there, as was his custom. He would go and he would open up the Old Testament that they were knowledgeable about and had scrolls of, and then express how Jesus fulfills what the scripture says in the Old Testament, and now Christ has come. Let's follow now as I read God's holy word, starting at verse 10 of Acts 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring the crowd, up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you for this time and place to be gathered to hear your word explained. I pray that you would give us attention to your word being preached. Help me to be accurate and engaging. 
Help us all by the ministry of your Holy Spirit to pay careful attention and to live out what we learn. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake and for his glory. Amen. So we have reached Berea on this second trip, and maybe you have heard of the Bereans over the years. I know I have, and when I think of the Bereans, I'm challenged. I'm challenged on a couple levels. I'm challenged as a pastor who is charged with preaching and teaching the Word of God, and I'm challenged as a disciple of Jesus who sits where you sit many times under the teaching and the preaching of the Word. Um, to be like the Bereans. You know, I don't like to preach be like so-and-so sermons because Jesus is the hero of the Scriptures. This is one occasion, though, where it probably is helpful and appropriate to think about the conduct or the relationship that the Bereans had to the Word of God and even challenge ourselves or be challenged by their posture towards the Word, their interaction with the Word, the Word of God, their eagerness to hear the Word of God explained and to examine everything that was said through the lens of the Word of God. Certainly, there's something for us to take away. And I would like to do it from two different angles. Think of it from the perspective of those who teach and preach, and then from the perspective of those who receive the word taught and preached, like we have here with the Bereans. I'm challenged as I consider how eagerly they approach the word. It challenges me personally in my own eagerness, or lack thereof sometimes. It also challenges me as a pastor to make sure that the word you receive is engaging, that you that it's accurate, that it's what God intends to be said to you, the people of God, who are eagerly waiting to receive it. So many levels of challenge come to us when we read this stop that Paul makes. Let's observe the Bereans and how they modeled a practice with Scripture that really every Christian can learn from and emulate. First, let's see how they receive the word in verse 10. We don't see many receptions like this for Paul and his preaching, so we certainly can appreciate it when it comes up like this. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. That's from Thessalonica. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, their their usual practice, their custom. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now why are they more noble? Well, they received the word with all eagerness of their posture for receiving the word. They were looking forward on that Sabbath day to have the word open to them and explained to them. There was an eagerness that they had. And for this reason, they're said to have been more noble than the the Thessalonians. We know how Paul approached the synagogues because we've seen it multiple times. With the scriptures that the synagogues would have, there are multiple copies, handwritten copies of the text there. The apostle would be able to show through the books of the Old Testament how Jesus, the historic Jesus that they knew of within 20 years of his ascension even, um, that he fulfilled what the Old Testament taught. And so the gospel story of Christ is now circulating, and now Paul is preaching at these places and writing letters to these places and speaking the word of God as an apostle of God, and he is Speaking this in the context of the synagogue with people ready to hear. They're eager to hear. They have the Bible. They know the Bible. They're looking for the Messiah. And he's showing them that Christ is the Messiah. That's what he is expressing to them. And notice the description. Once again, it's worth repeating. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Now, at first... That's throwing some shade on Thessalonica because the Thessalonians, it wasn't that bad of a stop. It wasn't like Philippi 
where they, they got run out the same way. I mean, they got run out of Thessalonica, but it was a little less painful. And in the case of the Thessalonians, it just took some time for them to hear Paul's message clearly and agree with it, you might say. So maybe that's what he means by them being more noble. You remember at Thessalonica when he went to the synagogue, Paul had to spend three Sabbath days, three full weeks. In the passage earlier in chapter 17 says, Paul went in to Thessalonica as was his custom. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. It seems like he had to struggle a little bit to make the connections and make it clear uh, over a three-week period. Reasoning, explaining, proving. Now compare it to Berea. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Now, by noble, Berea wasn't a first century noble town by any means. It's not referring to their class socially. It has to do with their state of mind or their receptivity to what was being spoken. In fact, some of your modern versions will say open-minded instead of noble-minded. They were just simply more ready and receptive than those who were living in Thessalonica at this time. They were noble because, as the passage says, they received the word with all eagerness. Eagerness, this alertness, this posture of of openness to receive what God was revealing. Now, with that, allow me to draw a couple applications. One, for the preachers and the teachers, speaking to myself largely, but those who have opportunity to preach and teach the word, then make an application for the congregation as a whole, those who sit under the word and eagerly come expecting the word to be delivered or preached. Paul and Silas. They came ready to give the word consistently. When you observe the apostolic model for preaching, it's challenging to anyone who's a pastor or a teacher. Um, It was deep. It was biblically coherent and united. There was a knowledge of the Old Testament that comes into the teaching of the new revelation in Christ that the apostles had received. For me, it would be having to have a knowledge of, of the background and then also what is fulfilled in the just knowing it, having a thoroughgoing knowledge of what the themes of Scripture are that God lays out in His Word. They knew this and they came with this. It's clear when they preached. They gave competent expositions of the passage of Scripture to the people. You know, preaching in itself, there won't always be entertaining moments or even exciting moments at at spots, but the message should be so exciting to the preacher that they come with passion to express this to the congregation. That's what you see with the apostles when they preach with the passion they have. You know, they go to a passage, they gain the accurate interpretation of it, and then draw the timeless element of its meaning to the current audience. And you see them do this with the Old Testament, applying Christ to those audiences that they preach to. And you see how this translates. It's it's my job or the teacher's job to really spend time knowing what the passage meant in its original context to the original audience And what that timeless principle is, it applies across the generations. Not just 55 AD, but 2019. Often that comes in the form of applying the truth. The truth is always the truth. But it will be applied in different ways in different times. There will be different 
confrontations we'll have with cultural strains or mindsets or whatever. We have to be conformed by the word, not by the world. And that requires the preachers of the word to be clear and truthful about what the message is and then what it might mean for us as an audience. This is an ongoing labor. It's a burden to bear. And it's important. The apostles give us a tremendous picture of how this ought to be done. And personally, it's very challenging to me because you never arrive. You never grow up to be as effective as you can be as a preacher. It's all by God's grace. We know this. To even use a human being to help you see the word of God is amazing and exemplary of how powerful God is, that that could even be possible. But as I think about the way this challenges me, The Bereans were ready and eager. That means the pastor, the preacher, the teacher should be coming to that audience uh, with all the necessary preparation and prayer and consideration one can muster. This should be a huge part of what I spend, we spend our time working on. If you're going to come ready, we should come ready too, ready to bring you what the Word of God is. It's not the Word of man. It's the Word of God. So therefore, we should spend as much time and effort as possible to make sure that we are giving you what it is that God wants for you. I am challenged by this example. Even as I read the Bereans' response, I can imagine what goes in to the preachers and the teachers bringing this. And I know that there are so many ways in which I need to continue to grow. I think to myself sometimes, I catch myself in the middle of a sermon thinking, 22 years later and I still talk too fast. I mean, it's just who I am. I mean, I talk fast. So that's why I repeat myself a lot rather than slow down. But I'm going to prove in this. There are so many other areas. I think of applying the text. Sometimes I like to spend so much time explaining it that I maybe don't give the practical ways you can consider living it out in your life. That's a struggle. It's a strain that I hope the next 22 years, if the Lord gives me that many years to preach, that I would get better at doing that. Um, so many areas um, that I think are owed to the people of God from the preachers of God so that it is engaging. This is the word of God for sure. I really need to be more apostolic in my thinking and preaching. That's something that sticks with me through the book of Acts. Now, having said that, if I have to be more apostolic, that means you could probably be more Berean. I'm just saying. Now, I want you to think about this. You, you knew this was a bit of a setup, all right? But this is the, the truth of the matter. So I'm also sitting in your spot at times as well. Uh, But I want you to think about this application from the Bereans for us today in 2019, knowing that our situations, our context is not identical, but the spirit that you see here is is perked because of what the word of God is. So we have to see how that might apply to us. Verse 11, they receive the word with all eagerness. You know, like a, a kid on Christmas morning, eager to go open those presents. That's the exact kind of picture you get about the Bereans waiting for Sabbath day in the opening of the scriptures. They were ready for the Lord's day. Now, it's true. The Bereans did not have as many copies of the Bible as we have at their disposal. I mean, we all probably have the text on our phones. So we have the word of God with us all the time. They didn't, so they would look forward week to week to the opening of the scriptures. They had to go to the synagogue to even see the Bible or see the the passages in writing. They depended on the corporate gathering, so you could see why they were so eager to have the Word of God open. There was a genuine hunger that welled up for the preaching and the teaching of the Word with the Bereans. That should be true of every Christian, but maybe it's a little less for us on the Lord's Day because we have so much exposure throughout the week. That would be a good thing if we had so much exposure throughout the week, for sure. It's true. The Bereans did not have radio sermons, so they were even more eager, perhaps. The Bereans did not 
listen to sermons on podcasts or online. Um, so that could be a reason why they were so eager, right? It's true, the Bereans didn't have Twitter, you know, to check their favorite celebrity pastor's clever, spiritually, earth-shattering, pithy posts on social media. They didn't have this, so they had to come every Lord's Day to hear about from about the Word and from the Word. So they were eager for corporate teaching. I know it's not exactly fair to look at those eager, hungry, ready-for-the-sermon Bereans and see ourselves in the exact same place. And many of you may have various reasons why you're less eager than you maybe should be or whatever. Not here to judge that. You know what your case is. It's more diverse than the Bereans had, I completely acknowledge. Maybe it's not exactly fair to expect you to be just like the Bereans when I bring a sermon to you. Maybe. In what way today can it be said of us? They were more noble or open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. That we just cannot wait for the next time the word could be opened so that we can gain clarity about it. What, what would have to happen for us to be in such a state? Here are a few challenges to, for us to think of. Netflix cannot be more important late Saturday night than being rested and eager for Sunday morning. Video games can't be more important than being well-rested and receptive Sunday morning. Social media can't be more important than being ready for the Word of God on Sunday morning. Preparation and expectation on Saturday helps us to be alert and eager for the Word on Sunday morning. You know, I often hear people say they don't come Sunday night because they have to get rested for school or work Sunday morning. Okay, that may be true. But if that's the case for work Sunday morning, why not for church Sunday morning? Why not Saturday night be thinking in terms of what's going to happen? We're going to get to go and open the very word of God from the king of the whole universe who sent his son to die for us, and he gives us words of life in a dying world. I'm going to sleep in. Or I'm going to plan stuff so regularly that I'm never in the Lord's house on a regular basis, maybe a couple times a week or a couple times a month. You know, looking to the Bereans as a model regarding their practice with scripture, we see their eager reception when it's expounded, taught, or preached. But we see something else that I want you to notice in their response to the word being preached that doesn't just hold to corporate gathering times, but it's about everything in their life, every day of their life. They examine the word, notice the word daily. They receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These things about Christ that Paul was teaching, they would then go to the scriptures and examine them daily. And in their case, they would have to go somewhere to see them physically. They didn't walk around with copies of it. They had it committed to memory, no doubt. And they would examine what Paul had just preached and sift it through what they knew the scripture said to see if it was true. Now, that's a model for the whole of life, right? It's to know the scripture so well that they could sift any information they get that the world might give or they might read or someone might say and sift it through the scriptures to see what is the right way to think about it. Not trust their instincts on it, but what the scripture says, and then examine whatever is pro, whatever is proclaimed through the lens of scripture, through the grid of scriptural understanding. You see the Bereans now, the members of the church, not just the, the pastors, the members of the church being able to do just this. Examine things, statements, teachings about scripture with scripture to see that it's true. You know, as I think of the application of this statement, examining the scriptures daily for the people of God, I want to think of the pastors and teachers and elders of the church first. Um, we are to model a proper biblical interpretation or methodology 
so that you can start to get a hold of it yourself and apply it. It's not just to come and hear me do it, but if you see the pattern over the years, you start to understand how it is you should approach a text of Scripture. And we walk through the Bible in an exposition, so you see how each different kind of genre of Scripture is handled, and you can do it too in time as you learn. If you just only came Sunday mornings, you would get enough of a a model or a pattern to apply it in your own Bible reading and application. But certainly we could be providing, and we do provide, many more ways to become strong in biblical interpretation and understanding. We pastors and teachers are to model for the congregation how to rightly handle the word of truth for yourself. My hope is not that you depend on me or other church teachers or leaders for your understanding of Scripture but rather that you would become proficient in handling the word yourself. Now, it's true, if you're new to the faith, new to Bible study, there is definitely a period of time where you just kind of absorb it, where you sit in the pew and you listen to different resources. That's that's totally understandable. But you're supposed to, at some point, go to a level of being able to understand it better for yourself and interpret it rightly. Interpret it the way the original author wrote it, meant for it to be interpreted for that audience and how it applies across the generations to us sitting here today. You know, I try to teach a method when I teach a leadership class. You know, for all the leadership principles, you might teach a leadership class. I think the most important one is that a person, a brother or sister in Christ, knows how to interpret the Word of God correctly. So I teach them this acronym called CAPTOR, where they start with C and go to A-P-T-O-R. And C is context, the historic context like Thessalonica and then where it appears in the book of Acts. Literary context, historic context. You start there. And this is a good way to listen to sermons when they're preached too, to hear if the the teacher the preacher is laying out these things. That's important for the next portion, which is analysis, where you walk through the various various verses and you analyze it, looking at the language and the structure, what's being communicated. The normal understanding is usually the right one. Sometimes there's difficulties because of the language from Greek to English. You don't have to know Greek initially, at least sitting there, uh, to get some strong guidance and transformation from scripture. You have so many, there's so many tools to know. A study Bible will let you know if there's a linguistic issue that you should be aware of, like noble-minded really could be open-minded, that kind of a thing. You could probably find that in your study Bible. And you and analyze the passage and you note that there's some challenges or some struggles or troubles. You might have to ask for help with those. We call those problems, not problems with the word, but problems with our understanding something in the text. Then you go to themes. Once you've seen what it's communicating, what does this tie into? You know, we see a recurring theme of the preaching of Christ's resurrection in the book of Acts. Whenever Paul preaches, he seems to go to the resurrection of Jesus. That ties into a bigger theme of Scripture. And you start to tie together the Bible through themes that you discover in smaller passages. And then what flows from this are the O and the R of chapter obligations, those timeless truths that are applicable to all the people of God everywhere. We should be eager for the word of God to be preached. We could say that's something that flows from this passage. Now, the R is reflection. That's personal. Where in my life could that improve? Where is that? What state in my life is this obligation or this thing God's calling us to? Now, it's always anchored back to the grace of God in Christ, We're not obligated or reflecting to obey in a way is to earn something from God. It's just reflective of, as children of God, how does the Word of God help us in our state? How does it help transform us? How does it sanctify us? 
Now, I just rapidly went through a way of interpreting Scripture that I hope, even if you would just look at a regular outline, would start to gather. This is the basic approach our pastor's taking. Analyze this. Is this true to what the Word of God says? Now, like the Bereans, you don't have to be suspicious. I'm not trying to fool you in anything. Uh, But it doesn't mean I'm right all the time. So go to the Word and study it and ask for God's guidance. Read resources. Interact with one another in a way that's unifying. We're just trying to discover God's will. I think the Lord blesses that mindset in a church, and I think it will help you want to come every week eager to hear the word open afresh. Now, what about to the people of God? How might this apply to you, and why is this helpful or important? They receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, specifically, they were analyzing the claims that Paul made about Jesus. But we could easily expand this on the basis of other passages of Scripture to say anything, any message we hear, whether it be from your pastor when he's preaching it or a message that the world is expounding, we should be able to examine that message through the light of Scripture to determine if it's right or wrong or what the state of it is. In fact, all Christians have to have this ability over time to grow in it. That's part of why you're part of a church, is to grow in this individually and collectively that we would see through the lens of Scripture. And when an issue comes from wherever it comes from, we just take it to the Scripture and determine, does the Bible say something about it? What does the Bible say about it? Because what the Bible says about it is most important. Um, Our own instincts are very fallible. The instincts of, of a cultural trend are very fallible, historically so. Whereas the scripture is always reliable. Not always popular, but always reliable and always right. It's the truth. And that's what we're seeking after is the truth. So read the word for yourself regularly, not just on Sunday. You don't have to overdo it. Just be exposed to the word on a regular basis. Avail yourself of the various resources that enhance your Bible knowledge. We try to provide that here through your church um, with teaching outlets, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, Bible studies, all of it is seeking to get into the Word of God so that we might be able to think as the Word of God directs. We oversee a Christian school for this very reason, to spend hours on integrating what the Scripture says regarding all the subjects. We study the subjects as hard as any other school would, and then we see, sift them through the lens of Scripture to see what, how it informs us. This is the endeavor of us, as every family should be endeavoring to do this in whatever way you find um, able to be done, do it, so that your children see through the lens of Scripture and can then, when issues arise, examine it to see if these things are true. This helps in so many ways, especially in the days in which we live. I mean, think of the kinds of issues that are discussed. Not saying one way or another about the issue, but when you hear someone, when you hear people argue about some matter that's a real hot button, climate change or, or medical ethics or whatever, Christians should not freak out. They should simply think in terms of what does the Bible say about this issue? Does it say something about the issue? Maybe some principle that helps us. And so as we Christians learn the scriptures more, we don't overreact to whatever the latest thing the culture says is. We don't look like we're immediately opposing everything out of hand. We have a lens to see through and we can rationally explain our position without compromise and without necessarily being um, antagonistic up front just simply saying the Word of God says this about this issue or teaches or guides us in this way. It happens all the time. I think of the issue that's been happening that's so popular today, uh, stemming from the definition of marriage and Christian biblical ethics about sex and marriage, and just how confused the culture is. 
Um, whether it be the view of wealth, marriage, justice, poverty, love, environment, whatever it is, Christians should be well-equipped to have a rational explanation as to what we believe. People may not accept it, but it's rationally explained and derived when we tell them that we are people of the Word of God, and this is what the Word says. We are better than nobody. We are sinners who are in need of Christ. We think the Lord is clear in His Word, and this is why, and this is what we, it says. Examining the Scripture daily to see if these things were so. What a great picture of our mindset about everything. The Bereans were receptive of the Word of God. They examined the Word of God daily, and they were also necessarily impacted by the Word of God. If the Word of God is faithfully preached and taught or expounded, there will be an impact. And the impacts that we see here are are common. They're not uncommon. We should expect to see this. We see it happen over and over again in the book of Acts. And when Paul writes in the epistles, he addresses some of these impacts that preaching has caused. Look at the passage with me as we see the first impact when the Word of God is preached. Verse 12. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. When the Bible is faithfully taught, people will come to faith. People will trust in Christ. There will be conversions. People who are not Christians will become Christians because they'll hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit works with the word and regenerates people. That's how he does it. That's the normal way people come to faith in Christ. So we should expect at some level, when the church is faithful preaching the gospel, people will be converted. And believers will be refreshed. They'll be reignited, recommitted, rededicated. When they hear the gospel, when they hear the word of God, faithfully preached and taught, they'll be emboldened. Um, They'll be strengthened. People will come to faith, and Christians will become stronger in the faith. This is an impact we should expect to see happen. I love what our confession says about the Word of God, and it helps you understand why this impact will happen at some level. The confession says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies also. It's a high view of the scripture that we look forward to, and it's a high view because it's an impacting word that God gives us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we may impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Not too long ago, we saw the conversion of Lydia when the word of God was preached to her. Listen to that language again. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The word of God went forth, and the Lord opened her heart by the Spirit of God to believe. That's an impact that happens when the word of God is faithfully preached. There's another impact, though, that we should be aware of. We've been seeing it. The other impact comes in verse 13. Let's recognize it together. When the word of God is preached, count on this. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. You see what's going to happen? 
if the word of God is faithfully preached, opposition will rise up in one form or another in every such culture. Opposition will rise. Um, the word of God speaks a heavenly truth that fallen man doesn't understand. And eventually, the preaching of the word will come in conflict with some, conflict with some aspect of the fallenness of, fallenness of man. And there will be opposition. And in some cases, the opposition will turn to persecution. These are the facts, the realities of the existence of the church for these 2,000 years. We could expect that would still be the same today. When we consider it in Paul's day first. The overarching force was the Roman government or the Roman authority. But there was a constant cultural strain that worked underneath the umbrella of the Roman Empire. And they would work together against Christianity. You remember what happened with Jesus. When he was preaching and teaching, the Jews were jealous of his teaching. They didn't believe him. And so they employed a popular groundswell to the Roman government, telling the Romans, hey, he's saying he's king. So Caesar's not king, according to this guy. So they come together, unbelieving populace with the governmental authority or whatever authority may be, the Roman Empire or the Roman Emperor, and together they oppress or oppose Christianity and then even persecute Christianity. We saw it in Thessalonica. Remember what happened there? Um, They were upset um, that Paul and Silas were moving people away from the Jewish way of life. It wasn't really a faith issue. It was a cultural issue. And so they appealed to the Roman authorities saying, They're preaching this Jesus, who's a king instead of Caesar. And opposition came and persecution came. These are going to be necessary impacts to a church or the church if it's going to preach the Bible faithfully. That is unavoidable. We have to understand this. Notice what it says in the passage before us. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. You know, today, there's not so much a Caesar to appeal to, but you can recognize what could happen in our context. Um, there's the, the cultural consensus that swells up that is usually formed by various forms of mass media bringing certain values and perspectives to a popular level and, and transmitting it. The consensus is further propagated by a massive educational system that we should not deny. It's a a willing agent of those thoughts. Just pick up a curriculum book and be honest about it. So the mass media and educational systems work together to propagate a certain way of thinking. We have it. So when Christianity speaks out, perhaps against some aspect, maybe not meaning to be against, just promoting what our values are. If I did a biblical a sermon on biblical marriage, no attempt to address anything out. Eventually that gets known and the cultural powers that be don't like it and they bring opposition and that's been happening for a while. Make no mistake, persecution is coming. It's coming. We are comfortable here, but it won't be much longer. Unless something completely different from all historical examples happens, we will face some level of this. And we have to be ready for that. And the way we're ready is to be so sure of the scriptures that bring what may, this is what God says. If you are not a student ready for that, it will be very easy to fall away from it. It'll be very easy to not hold. If it's not a priority, it's not hard to give it up. But if other things are priority and we don't want to lose them, 
maybe we can give a little on this or give a little on that. Think about how this impacts every generation, every church, and every place. Places in the world right now, they've made their decision. In some cases, in extreme ways, they're dying for it. In other places, the church has died. I hope somewhere more in the middle is where we are. But the reality is, this pattern we see, when the word of God is faithfully preached, expect opposition, and in many cases, persecution ultimately comes also. We pray for God's intervention, for his revival, to stave this off. But at the end of the day, the people of God should know the word of God is true and right. They know that the grass withers and the flower fades and cultures rise and cultures fall. They say it's true one day, it's not true the next. One time evil is right and right is evil and the other is is true. People of the word should be much steadier than that no matter what comes to us. What do they do in this immediate case? Notice the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, verse 14, moving him along to the next destination. But notice they weren't giving up on the church here, but Silas and Timothy remained there. It doesn't say how long, but they clearly were there for continuing the continuing bolstering of the newly the newly spawned church in Berea. So then, those who took Paul uh, as far as Athens, which is a long way away, so this probably weeks between the time that Paul left and Silas and Timothy joined him. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I'd like to close with uh, the conclusion that John Stott gives in his commentary about Thessalonica and Berea. Hear what Stott had to say. Luke chronicles the Thessalonian and Berean missions with surprising brevity. Yet one important aspect of them to which he seems to be drawing his reader's attention is the attitude to the scriptures adopted by both speaker and hearers as evidenced by the verbs he uses. In Thessalonica, Paul reasoned, explained, proved, proclaimed, and persuaded. In Berea, the Jews eagerly received the message and diligently examined the scriptures. Thus, Paul's arguments and his hearer's studies went hand in hand. I do not doubt that he also bathed both in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit of truth to open his mouth to explain and his hearer's minds to grasp the good news of salvation in Christ. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Indeed, O Lord, give us a receptive eagerness to your word, read, taught, and preached. I pray for this strengthening of our conviction and courage, as well as for your glory to be apparent through the belief and obedience of your redeemed people. I pray this through Christ. Amen.